Just really excited about what God's doing, and it's a challenging time we're living in, but we're anxious to get into the Word of God this morning and to see what God has in store for us. So I just ask you to join me in prayer as we prepare our hearts to spend some time in the Word. Father, you're a good, good Father. And I just pray, thanking you for such a beautiful day. We give you praise for the, the glorious day, at least it is here in Urbandale, and we're grateful for your bounty and your blessings. I, I pray for those in our church body and those who are listening that you'd be an encouragement to them, that somehow they would know your presence and your power and your peace. I ask that you'd give wisdom and direction to our leaders as they make difficult decisions about what's the next step in the process of returning to some semblance of normalcy as a country. I ask that you'd help us as believers to be bold and courageous witnesses and to seize and seek opportunities to share and show the love of Jesus. I pray, dear Father, that as we open your word that you'd speak to our hearts because we need to hear from you. Give us wisdom. May this be your spirit working in us to change and transform us. May we hear what you need us to hear and may we be changed by your word and by your spirit for your glory. For the gain of your kingdom. Lord, it is your word. Help us not to take it lightly, but to understand it fully and to live it out more consistently. We pray that you would help us to get to know you better and love you more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This week, Harvard professor Elizabeth Bartholet argued in a recent article that was published, I believe, in Harvard magazine for a ban on homeschool instruction. And her primary concern for wanting to ban home education was the fact that during home education, so many of the students are indoctrinated with Christian perspectives, Christian principles. So that she saw as something that needed to be curtailed. Just recently, I was visiting with some folks, and they were sharing how in the area in which they were living, the churches had increasingly drifted away from biblical truth. And they were permeated with false teaching. And I share those stories, both of them, because they're anecdotal, but I think they're illustrative of what's happening in the broader culture. Both outside and within the church, there is a, a battle over biblical truth. It's increasingly more hostile in America today. Increasingly and repeatedly, correct biblical positions are misunderstood. They're maligned, they're marginalized, and even modified to become more socially palatable and more acceptable. And the impact of this, I believe, is a, this drift from truth, is within the church it leads to a self-righteousness, a smugness that allows us to somehow define the parameters of righteousness in a way that pleases us. And outside the church, it leads to full-blown secularism. And neither of these paths lead people into the kingdom both of them lead them away from the kingdom of God God's glorious kingdom and so the need for truth 
the truth of God's Word, to be learned as well as lived is just as great today as it was in Jesus' day when he articulated a clearer understanding and a correct understanding of God's law in his famous Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus declared to his followers that the kingdom of righteousness involves an understanding of and an obedience to the Word of God that is far deeper and far superior to that which was being taught by the religious leaders of his day. So as we're in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 48, Jesus is offering up six examples of this faulty understanding of God's law and a deficient view of sin. He's exposing a deficient view of sin that was taught by the scribes and Pharisees, which is in contrast to his authoritative teaching. And each of these six examples begins with maybe one exception with these words. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. Last week, Kyle, in opening up the first section here in verses 21 through 26, showed us how Jesus was teaching that the kingdom righteousness involves mending broken relationships. Now this morning, as we look at verses 27 through 32, we see that kingdom's right, kingdom righteousness means a morality that seeks to preserve what is unbroken. So it's not mending what is broken, it's preserving what is broken. So in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 32, Jesus identifies two ways that our righteousness manifests a kingdom morality. And I'd like you to join me as I read the text, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. If you take your device or your Bible and turn it to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 32, I'm going to read the text. You have heard it sa- it, that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her in his heart. If, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to go into hell. And it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife except for the cause of unchastity makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So here we have these two ways in which righteousness manifests a kingdom morality. That This is the way our, our reflection of God's will is to reflect a morality that is consistent with kingdom righteousness. And the first way that we see it is that our righteousness practices sexual purity. Now, there are two ways that Jesus articulates what real purity involves. And first of all, he gives us the definition of adultery. In verses 27 and 28, he says, You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. (laughs) The scribes and the Pharisees uh, believed in complete conformity to the law that they were in complete conformity as long as they did not commit the act of adultery. So as long as we didn't go there, we're consistent with what God's Word says. That's all we need to do. They were practicing what we're going to call guardrail godliness. 
Maybe you've been on one of these mountain roads or you've seen it in a picture like you do now where there is a guardrail that's up. Now imagine, if you will, that our life is the traveling in a car down this road. That's the practices of our life. Our life is moving down this road. And the guardrail on the side that represents the barrier over which our actions must go, must exceed, in order for us to be declared sinful enough to drop over the cavernous ravine and into the ravine of God's divine judgment. So, we're traveling down the road. As long as we don't cross over that guardrail, you know, that one extreme action, then we're, we're fine. We are considered to be righteous. So when you confine sin only to the violation of a, like a, a certainly extreme action, like the Pharisees did, uh, it broadens the road of self-righteousness. Like, a lot of people can do that, right, if we just don't cross this line. Now, they were deluded into thinking that they somehow had a corner on the market. They thought they had really narrowed it because there were a lot of people who were committing adultery, and so they saw themselves as very special. But in actuality, they were broadening the, ro- broadening the road to self-righteousness by confining it only to the extreme actions as sin that God would condemn. There would be many people on this road to righteousness. When Jesus came along, what he did was he narrowed the road. (laughs) He defined sin differently. Look at verse 28. He says, but I say to you, if anyone even looks on a woman to lust after her, he has committed adultery already in his heart. So Jesus took it from an action and he said, no, it's an attitude. Jesus held out a more stringent moral ethic. He defined and condemned lustful thoughts, not just adulterous actions. And so by expanding the definition of sin, he increased the number of people who were guilty exponentially, and he also drove a nail in the coffin of this idea of a guardrail mentality. It doesn't work. He shattered the guardrail mentality of those who prided themselves. Hey, look, we are righteous because we don't go there. Jesus says, oh no, you don't even have to go there. You have to just go here. I was thinking this week that some of you seen this young mother who was in Idaho, Meridian, Idaho, and she was arrested because she was playing on a playground with her daughter. And some of you would say that this is not right and, you know, she had violated the law, right? She had, according to what they had set down. Now, there were other people around, so the roadway was kind of wide because you could do a lot of things. You just couldn't do that thing. Now, think about people in other places like California or Newark. They can get arrested just for going outside. So she was outside. She had permission to go outside, so there's a broad road. And there, but there's a narrower road. The point I'm trying to make is that whenever we would say that there are, are more, more, the more attitudes and the more actions that violate the law, it increases the likelihood that we're going to transgress the law. Narrowing the path of righteousness uh, means more actions and sinful thoughts can be defined as that which violates God's principle. That's what Jesus did. He narrowed, he narrowed the law. Sin is really more powerful. It's very very more pervasive than what we would ever imagine. That's what Jesus was trying to get across to the Pharisees. That's what he was trying to get across to his disciples. That's what he's trying to get across to us. It's more pervasive. Think about what Jesus says 
a little bit later, and we're going to look at it in more detail, but in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus says that we should be careful to enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad, which leads to destruction, he says. And there are many who enter through it. Many enter the broad gate that leads to destruction. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Jesus is establishing that principle as he looks at the law and those who were keepers of the law because they kept the letter of the law but they didn't keep the spirit and the intent of the law thought that they were righteous but they aren't. We took our family to South Dakota a few different times and maybe you've been there you've been through this uh, road it's called the Needles Highway and there is a opening in the road that's cut through the rock and this is a very very narrow opening in fact I've been told that tour buses like this one actually scrape their mirrors when they drive through the Needles Highway tunnel it's a narrow way it's a narrow way to get to God Jesus wants us to see the extent of our sinfulness so we see the need for him to invest us with a righteousness that we cannot achieve on our own. And so at this point, this idea of looking on a woman to lust after her with a, uh, would commit adultery, we would commit adultery. I'm going to say something to the ladies who are listening. If, if you would just help us out here, uh, we would appreciate it. I would appreciate it. We would appreciate it. Since looking leads to lusting, we'd appreciate it if you'd give us less to look at. Okay? So... What I'm going to say is I'm not trying to dismiss or excuse our sinfulness as guys. What I'm asking for you is help. So when you wear things that are so skin tight and you reveal a lot of skin, what that is to us is a, like a neon sign or a flashing sign that says, hey, check this out. And uh, more often than not, we'll check it out. Now, that's not your fault that we check it out, but what you can do is help us by not giving us something to check out. And I know that that's a really a countercultural thing because I have to struggle with it with the women in my own family, trying to encourage them to wear stuff that is more modest so that it doesn't cause other people to stumble. But now I'm not trying to say that lust is only a guy problem. The Bible reveals to us that lust is a girl's problem too. If you go to Genesis chapter 39, verses 7 through 10, remember it was Potiphar's wife who was lusting after Joseph. So we see there's a definition of adultery. Then there's the defense of adultery in verses 29 through 30. And our defense has two stages. Actually three, but I'm going to add the third one in with another point. But the the first is our, our method of defense. In order to stress the danger of lust, of sin, that must be avoided, Jesus uses hyperbole. Now, that's just a fancy word for over-exaggerating something, okay? And he uses metaphor, a word picture, okay? In two parallel illustrations. And we read them in verses 29 and 30. And if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out. And in verse 30, first part. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off. That's hyperbole. That's metaphor, Okay? And notice he says two. He doesn't just say it once. So he's emphasizing this fact that's very important. We see, first of all, before we delve into that, at the end of verse 28, we see the the source of sin. He says that you 
commit adultery already with her in his heart. That's the end of verse 28. It's in our heart. Later in Matthew 15, Jesus addresses this and he says that sin arises from the heart. I want you to look at this text, if you will, in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. He says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adulteries and fornications, thefts, false witnesses and slander. So what he's doing here, and I think we should take to heart as you say, okay, well, I, I don't have to listen to this message because I don't really struggle with lusting, which if you're a guy, that's probably not true, but it may be true, but you probably would struggle with a lot of other heart issues. You may uh, struggle with slander. You may struggle with stealing. You may struggle with evil thoughts, all this kind of stuff. Anger, murder, like Kyle said last week, it's not just a matter of doing the act of murder. It's actually thinking, oh, you per your person is a raka, okay? You're foolish. It's from the heart. It's a heart issue. The Sin, adultery, stealing, theft, greed, all that stuff is a symptom of the real problem, which is the sin in our heart. And Jesus' understanding of the law shows how deeply flawed we are. He shows that it's not just a matter of that we do these things, but there's something going on and how helpless we are to change it in our own strength. I believe that's the point. What Jesus is trying to drive home with all of these illustrations, all these examples, is that we are completely flawed and we are unable and helpless to change it in our own power, in our own strength. Now it's spring, and if you've been in your yard or you've seen the yards, you've seen these things, okay? In most places, this is a noxious weed. We know them as dandelions, okay, dandelions. So if it's a dandelion in your yard and you go out with your hoe or you get your little spade thing or they have those little things with little forks on them you know that you're supposed to go out and, and cut off the, the flower what does that do nothing it may make you feel good for a day but you go out and do that today and tomorrow there'll be another dandelion growing and the point is this that to kill a dandelion you must attack its roots sin is a root issue the root of our sin must be conquered the root of our sin must be conquered. And because God is holy, our sin deserves His wrath. The Bible says, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wage of sin is death. We deserve death. We deserve separation from God. But the fact is that Jesus came preaching this kingdom of righteousness, declaring that He came. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He came to die on the cross to deal with the sin in our heart. I was just reading this morning in Hebrews chapter 2. In verses 14 and 15, in Hebrews 2, the writer of Hebrews says this, Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and that he might deliver those who through fear of death, were subject to slavery all their lives. So if you think about it, he came to deliver them from the, the penalty of sin, which was death. He came to deliver us from the power of sin, which is corruption in our life. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, the Apostle Peter says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Why did he do that? 
that he might bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. We have to kill that sin which was in us. You see, only those who possess the righteousness of Christ can practice the righteousness of the kingdom. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, He made him who knew no sin, that is, he made Jesus Christ who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, so that we might be made righteous. That means we are declared right before God in right standing with God, but then we have to live out that righteousness, and that's where we need the Spirit of God on a continual basis to work in us and through us. That's the source of it. What's the strategy for overcoming sin? Well, he says, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out. And then verse 30, if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off. Okay, we just said that the real issue is the heart. So if the real issue is the heart, then a physical expulsion or amputation is not going to deal with the real sin. So he's not advocating, I don't think, self-mutilation. He's not advocating self-mutilation because it cannot remove lust. What he's advocating is taking measures that will help us in our quest to conquer the ever-rising temptations that come within our hearts. So, what is the right eye and the right hand? They're metaphors. They represent that which is most important to the human body. Yet, even if that which is most important to the human body, he's saying, by metaphor, is going to cause us to go down a road that will cause us to sin, then we need to get rid of it. So, The application is, if there's something in our life that's causing us to sin, even as it's precious to us, then we must get rid of it. As Bonhoeffer said, no sacrifice is too great if it enables us to conquer a lust which cuts us off from Jesus. He's talking about conscious efforts to keep sin aloof and us aligned under the Spirit and under the Spirit's control. You know, I remember one of the first times I was in Europe, probably the second time I was with our our middle daughter, and we were walking down the streets of a huge, big city. And one of our mission team members had previously described this place and the culture. They said, this place has an eroticized culture which means that there was a lot of prevalence of uh, impurity. It was in your face. And so in all of the shops, many of the shops and many of the corner markets and things, there was all kinds of stuff that really weren't going to edify anybody, particularly a guy. And so my middle daughter, were walking down the street, and she was my conscience. She would say, Dad, keep your eyes straight ahead. Dad, look to the left. Dad, look in the air. You know, she was, my, she was my helper. I remember watching the movie Fireproof. And in the movie, the main character was struggling with pornography. And at one point in the movie, what does he do? He, he takes his computer out of his house and he throws it in the trash. Because he knew that was the only thing he could do to curtail the sin in his life. That's the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about here. I was flabbergasted. 68% of church-going men view pornography. 68%. It's a horrific scourge on our land. And Jesus says it's not a new thing. 
Okay? So our cooperation with God, which is what was required, because if we possess the righteousness of God, the practicing the righteousness of God, as Jesus advocates, the strategy is to help curtail and eliminate and restrain some of those things that would take us down the wrong path. It involves more than just what we look at. It involves more than just lust of the eyes. It involves a lot of things because we're supposed to cooperate with God. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, it is we are supposed to work at it and then God is at work in us to will and to do of His good pleasure. So there's us doing it and God doing it as those who are redeemed people. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about. So here's the deal. If, because all of our sin is really a heart issue. And Jesus is pointing that out. It's not just I did this or I didn't do that. It's what is the attitude of my heart. I can not commit adultery, but I can still commit adultery. In my mind. I cannot murder someone, but I can actually do the effectual same thing by harboring bitterness and anger towards that person in my heart. That's the point Jesus is making, and he continues to make that point. So, if my possessions, if my pursuits, if my preferences draw me away from allegiance to and obedience to Christ, I need to do something. I need to refrain. I need to restrain. I may even need to remove whatever it is, as precious as it might be, the thing which is perpetuating or promoting sin in my life. And you might too. So I think about this. I think about, okay, well, what if it is this hobby that I have? This hobby that I have is so consuming that it keeps me from following and being obedient, and actually it causes me to sin against God. Maybe I need to refrain it. Maybe I need to restrain it. Maybe I just need a temporary restraining order. Maybe I need a permanent removal. Maybe golf is too important. Maybe boating is too important. Maybe bicycling is too important. Maybe collecting stuff is too important. You know, how many snow globes do you need? You know, how many tie babies does a person have to have? How many toy tractors does a person need to have before they're really fulfilled and satisfied? How many... And you fill in the blank. How many pairs of shoes does a person really need? These are things that could be leading us down the wrong path. Maybe it's I have to have my wife or my children do exactly as I say all the time and I have to have control of everything that they do in such a way that I'm overbearing. And Maybe I just need your approval and so I'll do whatever I need to get your approval. Whatever the sin might be, we need to restrain. We need to hold back. Maybe I have this shopping problem. And now it would be a shopping online problem. Okay. What do we need to do? I don't know what you need to do. Maybe you just need to limit yourself. You know, I, I remember one time uh, for Lent, I, I fasted uh, over talk radio. Okay. I just said, I'm not going to listen to that garbage anymore. I'm just going to fast for talk radio. Okay. Maybe you need to cut up your credit cards. Maybe you just need to put them in a drawer with a lock and give the key to your wife or to your friend and then ask for permission to use it. I'm not saying that it has to be an all or nothing. There may be somewhere in between, but God needs to give you direction. Maybe you need to avoid thrift stores. Why are there such good bargains here? Yes, but as my father says, if you spend money, you don't need to buy something. You didn't save anything. You don't need it. You don't have to have it. 
And then we look not only at the method, but what's the motive? Why would we do this? At the end of verse 29, at the end of verse 30, there's this repeated phrase. For it is better, this for. You can circle that in your Bible if you want to. That is the the cause. That's the reason we would do it. Okay? For it is better for you if one part of your body should perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. That's better. Okay? Its sacrifice is predicated upon the seriousness of the sin. It's better to go through life maimed. (laughs) Now, not literally. I'm not saying, again, we're not advocating mutilation. It's better to go through life maimed, crippled, sacrificing what others see as normal than it is to go to hell. To to perpetuate sin that would, would destine me for an eternity apart from God. So, if I have to live with less social media than the rest of the people? I don't know. I'm not, I don't know Instagram and Snapchat, and, you know, maybe I'm not all up to speed on all these things. And so, you know, like this morning, I asked, well, how do, you, how do you subscribe to our YouTube channel? I don't even know how. But I'm asking you to do it if you want this to get out to more people. But maybe you don't need to do it because you spend too much time on YouTube. Or you need to fast from it for a little bit of time. Maybe it's... I can go without Dish TV, or now it would be some streaming service, Disney or you know, Amazon or whatever it is. Or maybe I just need to limit. I'm only going to watch it so much of the time. Some of you need to maybe limit just how much social media we do. And that's hard, I know, because we're in this pandemic and we're all in lockdown and so we are craving socialization. Isn't it interesting? Because that's the way God made us. He made us as social creatures. He made us for each other. And to encourage each other. So we have to set those things. Maybe we need to just spend more time with our family. Rather than being driven by the greed and the glamour of making more and having more. And people look at us like, wow, you know, that guy's, you know, he's missing out. No, he, that guy, that gal, they're, they're, they're really gaining in the kingdom. I don't know if you heard this story, but several years ago there was a gentleman who was hiking in the woods not not the woods in the west and he was hiking in some rock formations and he got caught in a crevasse or a crevice I call him a crevice I'm probably not pronouncing it correctly but anyhow it was a a fissure in the rocks and he was trying to narrow get his real narrow passage and his arm got caught and that was the only thing he just he couldn't get his arm out well I'm not going into gory details but he amputated his arm to save his life i'm not sure what it is for you maybe you need to do some strict stress stressful things to get rid of whatever is leading you into temptation maybe it's not so drastic but first of all we need to see that jesus points out that if we live in kingdom righteousness our righteousness practices sexual purity and i would say that guys this is a big problem for a lot of guys you may need to take some drastic actions you may need to contact somebody and have somebody have oversight of your computer you may need to have somebody checking in on you you need to may maybe have your your wife have a, have the password so you can access the computer whatever you need to do secondly we see that our righteousness prizes marital fidelity in verses 31 and 32 and Jesus shares with us three facts that prove the kingdom righteousness prizes, values, marital fidelity. Now, I, first of all, I just want to say that it's really my desire to present in a sensitive but yet spiritual 
scriptural way the truths of God's Word on a volatile topic. But the volatile topic is so vital to kingdom living. And one of the benefits of marching through the Scripture is because these things come up in the text. It's not like, okay, I cherry-picked this one to preach on. No, but it's in the text. And so I want you to see, first of all, that divorce is a real concession. A real concession. Verse 31. What, and it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Which is a, a summary statement to what Jesus Fuller expands on more fully in Matthew chapter 19. Consider the meaning uh, of the law from Deuteronomy 24, which is what he's referring to here. In Matthew 19, verses 7 through 8, he says, They said to him, Why then did Moses command her to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. I want you to notice that. They said, we should be able to divorce our wives for any cause at all. And he says, no, he never commanded you, but he permitted you. And he permitted you because of the hardness of your hearts. And so this is a real concession. The indissoluble union of marriage was under attack, then as it is now. The indissoluble union of one biological male and one biological female in marriage was being assaulted. And Jesus took issue with it. And Jesus understood that God's intention was for this union and they were trying to undermine it. And he mentions this reference to the law which is in Deuteronomy 24 and we're not going to go to Deuteronomy 24 but you can write it down and so that just the summary statements from Deuteronomy 24 what it taught was this first of all divorce was permitted only for some indecency so not for any reason not for any reason secondly a certificate of divorce was given in order to delay drastic or urgent action you know just off the cuff, hey, I want to get a divorce. And it was also to protect the woman. Because if the woman did not have a certificate of divorce in those days, she would be accused of adultery. And if she was accused of adultery and proven so, she could be stoned. So this was a good and definitely beneficial protection for her. And finally, the last thing it had to do was it said that if the the woman remarries someone else, she can't come back to her former husband it's not permissible, okay? But you need to understand, we need to understand, that the view of the Pharisees, and the majority of them, at that time is encapsulated in verse, Matthew 19, verse 3. And it says this, Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Wow, that sounds familiar. That's our culture. No-fault divorce, Right? You can divorce for any reason, no reason at all. And so one of the prominent schools of religious thought took the concession of Deuteronomy 24 and they turned it into a command and said that you could divorce for any reason. You know, you don't like the way your your wife looks at you cross-eyed some morning. You know, you don't like she has bad breath or she has bad hygiene or she doesn't do something the way you want her to do. It was a easy out. As long as you wrote a certificate of divorce, you're good to go. That was their guardrail. 
And so many could follow that one. Such permissiveness on the part of the scribes and Pharisees, on the part of their culture, on the part of our culture, undermines the purity, undermines the sanctity, undermines the fidelity, undermines the indissolubility of the marriage union. Pleasing God only required they write a certificate of divorce. So the sanctified union. God brought a man and a woman together in holy union and the sanctified union of one man and one woman who were to work together and serve each other selflessly and sacrifice exclusively for one another was completely trashed. Became a relationship reduced to nothing more than a relationship of convenience and self-indulgence. And it's sad that this is the way we are today. Several years ago, and, and I, I'm not saying anything to disparage anybody's character as an example and illustration of the way our culture has gone. Kim Kardashian married Chris Humphreys, and they were married for a total of 72 days. And it's sad to me, and I feel sad for her, and I, she's remarried now, and I wish her the best and hope that things are, are going well for her. But the reason for the divorce was irreconcilable differences. We no, we're no longer compatible. Here's the sad reality. 40 to 50% of all first marriages end in divorce. 65% of all second marriages end in divorce. One of the top reasons for divorce is issues of money. Or communication. I would venture to say that nearly every single person in the United States has been impacted in a meaningful way, not, not a positive way, but a meaningful way, by divorce. It's something we all are faced with. But I want you to know that according to Jesus, it's a real concession, not a command. Secondly, divorce is a rare exception. Notice what Jesus says in verse 32. But I say to you, their idea was, hey, as long as we write a certificate of divorce, we're good to go. He says, I say to you <clears throat> that there's, there's one reason. He deliberately attacked the permissiveness of the culture which advocated divorce for any reason. And he says, no, only when there's unchastity, only when there is some sexual perversion outside of the norm of that marriage union is there even a permission to be married divorce is permitted it's not commanded when there's persistent sexual deviation of the first degree <clears throat> now jesus said unchastity paul gave another exception in matthew or first corinthians chapter 7 when he said if the unbelieving spouse leaves the brother or sister is not bound by that so you have the unchastity you have the issue of an unbelieving spouse that leaves. Those are the cases in which marriage, divorce is acceptable. Divorce for any other reason, according to Jesus, leads the person who left and the person they marry into adultery. It's not good. Jesus' authoritative and stringent teaching upholds the indissolubility, it upholds the sanctity, upholds the purity, upholds the fidelity that there to be one in before God and before these witnesses. Now, I know that some of you listening, perhaps, are staring into the headlights of what you think may be a divorce. Some of you are looking in the rearview mirror at a divorce that took place and you're still experiencing the ramifications, the struggles of it. 
Some of you are wondering, well, what happens if I got divorced and got remarried, but it wasn't all according to all this, this pattern? I have some things I think that I hope will be an encouragement to you. First of all, if you're staring down the, into the headlights of what you think is a divorce, Jesus' words to you would be, do whatever you need to do to make this thing work. Do whatever you need to do to stay married. Humble yourself. Seek out counsel. Seek out wisdom. Humble yourself before God and turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. Don't try to blame it on the other person. Seek what is your part and own it. If you're living with a divorce from the past and you're dealing with it, I want to encourage you to turn to Jesus to Jesus for the help and the hope that only He can give you to get through the anguish, the sorrow, the struggle, the hardship of it. I want to encourage you, if you maybe say, well, I'm, I'm married now or I, I, I got remarried and maybe I didn't do it all the way that Jesus says, what do I do now? Here's, here's a word without condoning any sin. I want to celebrate Christ. In Hebrews chapter 4, uh, verses 14 through 16, the writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Notice that. What he's saying is we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who has been tempted in all things as we are. Not in every single temptation, but in every way we have been tempted. He's, he's been tempted. Yet without sin. Then he concludes, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence. Come to Christ with confidence. To the throne of grace. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. What I want to say is that we just come to God and ask for forgiveness. And maybe you're not a follower of Christ. And you need to understand and acknowledge that the, the sin in your life separates you from God. Turn from that sin. Name it. Understand it. You deserve its punishment. And then trust in Christ and His death as a payment for your sin and experience the forgiveness that God has given. If you're a believer, then just come to the throne of grace and say, Lord, I'm sorry. Yeah, I messed it up. Forgive me by your grace and help me to march forward. And if you're married now, stay married. That's, that's stay married. God holds up marriage, so don't go to trying to be, you know, two wrongs don't make a right. Uh, keep going in that marriage union. And some of you, you're married right now. Some of you are single and you want to be married. God's word to you is hey, take seriously God's charge about what this marriage union means. It's big business it's serious and view it a marriage as not a relationship of convenience but a relationship of commitment when I do premarital counseling I try to stress to couples commitment 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 your feelings of love will wax and wane but only your commitment to love is uh, each other is what holds you together before God in his in his witnesses and then we have that divorce is a really rotten option. I mean, it's, it's a rare exception. It's a real concession. It's a rare exception. And it's really a rotten option. Um, listen, divorce leads to emotional anguish. Everybody involved has emotional anguish as a result of divorce. It leads to adultery. It leads to abandonment issues for spouses who are left and children who are left. I have had the most unfortunate 
responsibility on two separate occasions. Some of the most difficult conversations I ever had in ministry. I sat down with three children, two separate occasions, two different families, three children, young children. And I looked them in the eye and I had to say to them, your dad is leaving, your mother. And I will never forget, never forget, I don't think, as long as God gives me a mind, the, 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 the terror and the horror and the emptiness and the fear in the faces of those young children. And I knew right then, and I've only had it confirmed, that nobody ever wins in a divorce. And yet, I understand. I understand that sometime it is the only option, but let us realize it is a concession. It's not the first option, it's the last option. It's no wonder God hates divorce. He says that in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. For I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. He hates divorce. See, marriage is to portray the union of, and the love of Christ for His church. Marriage is the first institution of God that is supposed to be the foundation of the family and the foundation of society. So when we trash it, when we demean it, when we make it disposable, when we redefine it, we violate God's design. And we lead to the demise of our society. Jesus expanded the definition of sin and that exposed the extent of our frailty and our failure. You hear, we cannot be right with God on our own. We cannot be right with God on our own. Yet we can come to the cross and we can find forgiveness in Christ that brings us into a relationship with God and we receive the righteousness of Christ. Those who know the righteousness of Christ can be restored into fellowship as we come and confess. And I think about the words of Jesus to the woman caught in adultery in John 8.11. And he says, Go and sin no more. There's forgiveness at the cross. He's not giving permission for sin, but a promise that God will pardon sinners. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want you to see that, that Jesus narrows the path to God very drastically. In fact, he's trying to point out that we can't make it on our own. So I want you to contemplate your own depravity and your own need for God's mercy to escape the wrath of God that's due you because of, of your sin. And I also want you to think about this. Oftentimes people who don't know Christ or not followers of Christ, they say, I'm not going to become a Christian. Christians are just hypocrites. Do you understand that what Jesus does here is he, he assaults the hypocrites. He indicts both the hypocrites who believe that their self-righteousness is good enough to get into the kingdom. They think it will exonerate them, but it doesn't. And he indicts those who are smugly rebellious, which would be a lot of those who are just saying, I don't want to come to Christ. He condemns both. The haughty you know, hypocrites, and those who are the wicked are, as, are, are loved by God. 
If you're a hypocrite, or if you're so arrogant that you don't think you need Jesus, guess what? God still loves you. But you still need to turn from your sin and trust in Christ, then you'll be saved. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no forgiveness. So I just invite you to repent and believe and just say, okay, Lord, I get it now, if this is true in your heart, that I'm headed for an eternity apart from you. And I deserve your judgment, but thank you for Jesus dying in my place so that he would conquer sin and the fear that I have that I would die. No, I don't have to fear that anymore. And the power that sin has over me, now I can be freed from it so I don't have to sin. And you would trust in Christ as your Savior and invite him to be your Lord and Master. If you're a believer this morning, hey, let's just be convinced that kingdom righteousness is possible only, only, as the Spirit of God empowers us to live as the Son of God requires of us. I'll say it again. Only can we live this kingdom righteousness as the Spirit of God empowers us to live as the Son of God requires us to live. It's up to Him working in us and through us, but we have to cooperate. So I ask you this morning, if there's some sin, maybe it's adultery in your mind, or actually, maybe it's that you're have a, a, a bad view of marriage. Maybe it's some other sin. Maybe it's just self, you're trying to control everybody. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's jealousy. Maybe it's pride. Self-centeredness. Just repent. Come to the cross and say, Lord, forgive me, for I have sinned. And then try to identify what promotes or, or perpetuates the sin in our lives and, and take action against those things. What are those things that fuel my anger? What are those things that fuel my greed? You know, what are the things that steps I can take that keep me from falling into this over the cre- crevice, over the deep ravine into, into judgment? Those of you who aren't married, I ask you, are you living pure and clinging to God's promises for marriage because you want to do it right? That's the path you need to be on. Stay pure and surrender. I remember several years ago when I changed, I was using a PC and I changed to a Mac and I was typing and working on my first sermon. And I had spent hours that week and I was kind of behind the eight ball and so it was like Saturday afternoon at four o'clock and I was wrapping up about four hours of, of work on the sermon that day and uh, putting the finishing touches on, on the sermon, getting close and something popped up. I was going to do something and a, a window popped up and I clicked a button without thinking and boom. Horror struck my heart. It's gone. All of it. It was vanished. All of my work was gone in a click of a button. I'm not kidding you. I turned around in my chair and I literally started bawling. I bawled like a baby. What am I going to do? It's four o'clock on Saturday afternoon. I spent all week working on this sermon, finishing it up, and I was like terrified. Jesus expands our definition of sin so that we see how desperately broken, how desperately needy we are. I needed the Spirit of God to come in a mighty way to regenerate all that had happened and whatever He wanted me to say that Sunday, I needed it. 
Jesus expanded definition of sin as internal hostility, as lustful impurity, as marital infidelity, exposes the depth of our depravity. Only at the cross can we be forgiven. I was beholden to the Spirit, and every person who's living in rebellion against God is beholden to the Spirit to become righteous to possess the righteousness of Christ, and then as a person who's trusting in Christ and received that righteousness, to practice the righteousness of Christ. We're beholden to the Spirit of God to do that. And as we think about what Christ has done and our need for Him, when we come to break the bread and drink the cup, we remember that these are symbols of His body broken and His blood shed so that through death, He might render powerless him who has the power of death. That he died for sin once for all. That we should no longer be slaves of sin. And those who receive his grace through faith possess that righteousness. And only those who possess righteousness and rely upon his grace can practice kingdom morality. I ask you today, this morning, will you receive the grace of God, the grace of Christ, and be saved from your sin and condemnation. Possess the righteousness of Christ. And if so, trust Him today. And if you know Him, will you turn to Him and rely upon His Spirit to work in you and through you to be more consistently living out this kingdom righteousness, to pursue purity and to prize fidelity, whether you're married or whether you're not married. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your love for us. I thank you for the message that Jesus brings to us about the importance of purity and how we should prize marital fidelity. I pray that you'd work in our hearts in these matters, but also in other areas to trust you fully, to realize that we need your righteousness and we can't live practically without your Spirit's work to conform us to the image of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd ask you to take your bread at this time and remember that Jesus, when he gathered with his disciples, said at one point in the meal he took the bread and and when he had broken it, he said, this is my body which is given for you. You take and eat. And so he gave the disciples and they ate the bread. I'm inviting you to to take the bread and, and eat the bread as a reminder of his sacrifice for you on the cross. In Luke 22, we're reminded that In the same way, Jesus also, after supper, he took the cup. And when he'd given thanks, he said, this is my, this uh, is a new covenant in my blood. Do this in as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You may drink the cup.
so grateful you can join us this morning for worship and invite you to join us again next week. Also want to remind you that this evening at 6.30 we'll be gathered for a time of prayer. We hope that you'll be able to join us for that. I'd just like to close our time in prayer. Father, I thank you for your son, Jesus, and for his teaching, which is so powerful, such a powerful reminder that we can't be righteous in our own strength, wisdom, or insight. We thank you that you've given us your son, Jesus, so that we could possess the righteousness of Christ and so that by his power and your spirit working within us, we can increasingly present the love of Christ to a lost and dying world. Give us grace and strength as we go this week to shine your light for your glory and the gain of your kingdom. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. Praise you, cause I know you will show.